I'll take it. What kind of person would say that? What's yours is mine, and I'll take it. A sinful person. Oh, well, good. <laughs> <laughs> that could be a non-Western person. That could be a non-Western person. Yes, but we would say a robber, a thief, right? What's yours is mine, and I'll take it. What's mine is mine, and I'll keep it. What kind of person would say that? Selfish man. Oh, selfish. Good. Uh, we might have a, a term. Non-charitable man. A non-charitable man. What a good word. We might say a uh, uh, an old term might be a miser, right? That 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 was a term that came to to, to, to my mind. A miser. All right. Now it's going to get tricky. Okay. What is the person that says, "What's mine is yours, so I'll share it." Well, a shareable person, but what's mine is yours, so I'll share it. Well, the all, the government says, <laughs> no, I think the government says what, what's yours is mine, and I'll take it. Uh, uh, almost, it almost sounds Christian, doesn't it? But what's missing if it says what's mine is yours, and I'll share it? Oh, they're saying what's mine. What's mine is yours, and I'll share it. We would we would call that just a uh, a humanist, someone that uh, yeah, someone that's kind at heart and wants to give, but something is missing in that phrase. A loving person. Well, it could be a love a giving person. So, what would the Christian phrase be? Very close. What's mine is God's, so I'll share it. Mm, you see the difference there? That would be the Christian view. What's mine is God's, so I'll share it. I just want to leave that little thought with y'all before you head off to off to Sunday school when thinking about the Eighth Commandment. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, serious. Had you had you ever thought about about it that way? That what part of the commandment? What's mine is God's, and I'll share it. Give him a chance to get upstairs. It was hard for me not to talk about what eighth minute was when I was praying. <laughs> well, one of the main reasons that God gives us the Ten Commandments is to bring us face to face with our own guilt. You know, if you look at what Paul is writing in Galatians, out of Galatians chapter three. Paul talks about the law here and how the law is a judge to convict us. He says it's like a jailer who keeps us under guard. He, he says it's like a, well, growing up I would call it a truant officer, a, a, a juvenile officer who treats us like runaway or delinquent children and brings us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. It says this, and it's uh, Galatians 3, beginning in cha uh, chapter 3, verse 22. Scripture has imprisoned everything 
under sin's power so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. The law, it says, then was our guardian until Christ so that we may be justified by faith. So in in other words, one of the main reasons for the law, again, is to bring us face to face with our own sin. This was Galatians chapter 3, verse 22 through 24. And if you read over the Ten Commandments and you feel guilty and you feel convicted of sin, then guess what? They're doing their job. And there, there's another reason for the, for the law as well. It reminds us of the high standards that God demands. It governs our behavior as children of the light by showing us what the characteristics of our walk by faith should be. You know, the, uh, another, another purpose of the law is to show us what true righteousness really is. You know, if you want, uh, you know, at one time those, those wristbands uh, that, you know, be like Christ, whatever they said on them, were, were popular. And if you want to live like Christ, these commandments tell you how to live. Because this is the way that Christ lived in perfect conformity to these righteous demands. And so even though the law no longer condemns us, it still rebukes our sin and tells us how we ought to live. And that's why studying the Ten Commandments is necessary and edifying for us. So yeah, the Eighth Commandment now found we're kind of moving on to Exodus. So Exodus twenty fifteen, and uh, some verses say, "Thou shalt not steal." Mine in a little bit more modern English. Three words for this verse: Do not steal. You know, I was looking up some research. We could all memorize that. One. We could, yeah. Well, that one would be easy to memorize. <laughs> And do you know that Americans shoplift $13 billion of merchandise every year? $13 billion gets stolen from stores shoplifting. But we don't do any of that. We should be okay with this commandment, right? We go, we don't steal. You know... I've never robbed a bank. I've never stolen a car. I've never embezzled money. I think maybe we're sitting, we can say, finally, here is a commandment I can get behind with confidence and say, I have obeyed this one, God. You know that 90% of the evangelical Christians say that they have fully obeyed this commandment. 90%. You would think that's good, wouldn't you? 
but it's really not encouraging. What it shows is that the majority of Christians have forgotten what stealing really means. They're liars. <laughs> yeah, it means they're liars. The truth is that theft is very pervasive at every level of society, not just American society, in all nations, throughout the world. And like everyone else, I think we're all in on it at times. And this commandment has profound uh, implications or profound effects on every one of us. And it sets a standard, I think, higher than any of us can attain. You know, to start off with, I want to lay a little bit of foundation work. When we say, do not steal, do you realize that, that this one commandment is the, the very foundation of a biblical view of economics? You're going, what does economics have to do with this commandment? This commandment establishes the right to private ownership. You know, so it rules out taking other people's property. It really rules out uh, being able to say, let's all share and share alike because that's really not a biblical principle. Listen at listen at Deuteronomy. It talks about when you enter your neighbor's standing grain, you must not put your sickle to the neighbor's grain. Property is to be respected. That which belongs to your neighbor belongs to your neighbor. Second Thessalonians. This is interesting. Second, Second Thessalonians three, chapter three, verse ten. It says, uh, "In fact, when we were with you, this is what we commanded you: if anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. For we hear there are some among you who walk irresponsibly, not working at all, but interfering with the work of others." <coughs> Now we command and exhort such people by the Lord Jesus Christ that we command and exhort such people to be quietly working that they may eat their own food. So there's two principles here. You work, you eat your own food. So it's the principle of private ownership and the principle of work. And so this passage is saying that we're supposed to provide for our own needs sustain our earthly lives, increase our wealth, and we do this primarily by working. And these principles weren't just in the New Testament. They were really established with Adam. Listen to Genesis. This is Genesis chapter 1, starting at verse 27. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. 
God also said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This food will be for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth. Everything having the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. So God created Adam and gave him ownership and dominion over all the earth's resources. He also commanded Adam to work. You know, the Lord took the man, placed him in the garden to work and watch over it. This is before the fall. Now, think about this. Adam was working. Adam had a job before the fall. Now, there were no weeds in the garden before the fall. There was no disease. There was no unpleasantness of any kind. So we don't know exactly what Adam's work would have been, tending the garden. But what we can draw out of it is that Adam's work would have been pure joy and delight to him. Can you imagine that? That your work is pure joy and delight? It was only when Adam and Eve fell that work took on aspects of unpleasantness. He said to Adam, Because you listened to your wife's voice and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow. And you will return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust and you will return to dust. You see, the sheer joy of work was spoiled by the curse. Here's something that I think we don't realize. That work, when done faithfully, when done as unto the Lord should be a source of great joy for us. Because why? You say, because that's the way God designed it in the beginning. And that's the way it should be in practice. It's, it is through our work that God bestows some of the greatest blessings on us. And if we don't work, we forfeit these blessings. Proverbs 14 verse 23 says, There is profit in all hard work, but endless talk leads only to poverty. This is the plan of God for our lives. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 11 and 12. Seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your own hands, as we have commanded you, so that you may walk properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. Work is the resource through which God gives us most of our material blessings in life. And this kind of ties into the fourth commandment. I hit on this a little bit. If you remember the fourth commandment, uh, Exodus 20 
uh, I'm looking at verse 9 and 10. You are to labor six days and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. So if you take this literally, it's saying that six-sevenths of our week is devoted to work. If you want the highest happiness in life, according to Scripture, if you want to experience the Lord's richest earthly blessings, Scripture says you don't find that in the leisurely activities. You find that in blessing Him through your work. You don't find it through entertainment. You don't find it through any of the things that people in our culture today are desperately seeking to find pleasure in. You find it in devoting yourself to bringing glory to God through your work. But the trouble is, today, we think of work as drudgery, as chore. We think of it as the unpleasant side of life. I think it's one of those things that culture has flipped flipped around. But the truth is, it's really, it's really the opposite. If you really want to be blessed by God, the way to do that is through work. Now, you're asking, what in the world does this have to do with the Eighth Commandment? I'll get to that in just a minute. <laughs> kind of thinking back to the Eighth Commandment, and here's where you'll start to see it tie in. I think that I'm going to start off by looking at three sins that really underlie the Eighth Commandment. Three sins that, that kind of are beneath the Eighth Commandment. The first one is the sin of unbelief. People steal because they mistrust the goodness of divine providence. Think of the, think of the Israelites uh, in the Old Testament. They spoke against God saying, Is God able to provide food for us in the wilderness? Well, of course He was. But they did not trust God to be able to do that. We don't trust God enough to provide a table before us. Through the fruits of our own labor, we don't trust God. So people resort to stealing, to cheating, or some other dishonest means of providing for themselves at someone else's expense. Every theft is a failure to trust in God's provision. Therefore, if you flip it around the other way, keeping the Eighth Commandment is a practical exercise of our faith in God's providence, in God's provision. So the first one was the sin of unbelief, is the foundation of stealing. The second one is greed, or some Bibles might call it covetousness. We allow ourselves to become sinfully displeased with what God has given us. And we covet, we're greedy for something that belongs to someone else. Colossians chapter 3, 5 says that greed or covetousness is not just a little sin. It says it's a form of idolatry. 
It is supremely wicked. It's the root of all kind of evil. And yet, the sin of greed or covetousness is a foundation for stealing. A third one is the sin of laziness. Uh, sloth would be uh, a term. I don't know how many would be familiar with that. It's a love of idleness. It's a hatred of hard work. And all of these are really forms of wickedness. And we should not just think of them as character flaws. Judas, who betrayed Christ, was first and foremost a thief. You realize that? That's where it started. John chapter 6, verse 12 says that he was a thief in charge of the money bag. And he would steal part of it for himself. Look at the life of Judas to see the result of what is born out of the sin of stealing. So if we take this commandment seriously, then I do think it has implications for us in the area of our, if you think about this, in the area of our citizenship, our work ethic, this is where I'll tie in the work, and our stewardship. Think about our citizenship. To steal, to take something dishonestly or secretly which belongs to someone else. Stealing is perhaps the fundamental breach of good citizenship in any country. It's universally recognized as a crime, and every nation has laws to prohibit stealing. What is stealing? Well, think about this. Stealing includes uh, breaking into a home or a building to commit theft. Uh, robbery would be taking property directly from someone else, using violence or intimidation. Larceny, taking something without permission and not returning it. Hijacking, uh, using force to take goods in transit, or seizing control of a bus, a truck, or a plane. Shoplifting, as I've already mentioned, taking items from a store without paying for them. Pickpocketing, purse snatching, uh, the term covers a wide range of even complex types of theft. Embezzlement. This is taken of money or goods entrusted to someone's care. Extortion. Getting money from someone by means of threats or the misuse of authority. Racketeering. Obtaining money by other illegal means. All of these are, are considered stealing. And these are pretty, pretty obvious. But what if you borrow something from a neighbor and never return it? That's considered theft too because you've taken something and never given it back. The fact that you forgot to return it doesn't mitigate the sin, does it? If you think so little of 
your neighbor's property that you would forget to return what you've borrowed, you realize you're simply revealing in that your heart was you had the heart of a thief to begin with. Martin Luther said that we break the eighth commandment whenever we take advantage of our neighbor in any sort of dealing that results in a loss to him. We may think we're just doing good business because we came out on top. But if we've if he's come out at a loss, we've really stolen. When the clerk at the checkout counter mistakenly gives you too much change or undercharges you for an item, you walk away feeling, well, that was the Lord's blessing on that, wasn't it? Hallelujah. If you knowingly allow yourself to benefit from such a transaction, you violated the Eighth Commandment. That sin is just the same as if you had reached into the cash register and taken out that extra money for yourself in reality. If a merchant cheats a customer by overcharging or using dishonest scales, that's the sin of stealing. Amos, uh, in chapter 8 of Amos, it condemns those who steal by uh, skimping out on the measurement, by boosting the price, or by cheating with dishonest weights. All of this is a violation of the Eighth Commandment. There's a uh, Norman Rockwell painting uh, of, uh, I don't know how many years ago, but I remember seeing it. And it shows this woman buying a turkey. And it's it's on a scale. And you see the, uh, uh, the merchant, the meat vendor, has his thumb slightly pushing down on the scale to make it weigh more. And you see the woman with her finger trying to push up on the scale uh, to make it weigh less. Both of those violating the Eighth Commandment. You know, think about this. Jesus condemned the money changers at the temple because they charged exorbitant rates for the sacrificial animals. They took unfair advantage of the people coming to worship. And they charged outrageous prices just because they could get away with it. And Jesus said what they were doing was morally undistinguishable from robbery. He described them as a den of thieves. This makes me think of the exorbitant prices I saw some people trying to sell generators for. Just a couple of weeks back uh, in the midst of uh, Hurricane Florence. Trying to charge exorbitant prices in a desperate time of need. It's a violation of loving your neighbor. It's a violation of loving your neighbor. That's right. <clears throat> North Carolina alone, get this, uh, state officials uh, have received 500 complaints of price gouging, mostly against hotels and gas stations. Hotels were charging ridiculous rates for desperate people. People who cheat on their taxes are stealing from the government. I mean, Jesus said in, in Mark chapter 12, give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Uh, Romans chapter 13 verse 7 says, pay your obligations to everyone. Taxes to those you owe taxes. 
tolls to those you owe tolls. Respect to those you owe respect and honor to those you owe honor. To not do that is stealing. And just before, this was Romans uh, 13, 7. And the verses before that, in, in 5 and 6, it says, Therefore you must submit, not only because of wrath, but also because of your conscience. And for this reason you pay taxes, since the authorities are God's public servants, continually attending to their, ta- to, to their tasks. So it's saying you shouldn't pay your taxes out of fear of what the government might do. You should pay them for conscience sake. Do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. All of this is calling for us to be not casual, but meticulously honest with our money and our possessions. An employer should not take advantage of the people working for him by paying them less than they're worth. You know, companies should not be increasing their profit margin at the expense of employees. Jeremiah speaks to this. It's Jeremiah 22, verse 13 says, Woe for the one who builds his palace through unrighteousness, his upper rooms through injustice, who makes his fellow man serve without pay, and will not give him his wages. Wow, the scripture covers a lot of things, doesn't it? Luke chapter 10, verse 7. The worker is worthy of his wages. So again, the business or the employer that takes advantage of their employees is violating the Eighth Commandment. You know, Christians at all levels as an employee, as an employer, as a business owner, ought to guard their reputation when it comes to matters such as this. Even, I would say, even don't skimp when it comes to leaving a tip at the restaurant. That's really a form of stealing as well. So that that was the first category. Uh, citizenship. The second category, our work ethic. You know, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28 says, The thief must no longer steal. Instead, he should do honest work with his hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. In other words, work is the best remedy for someone who's prone to stealing. Paul is saying, stop stealing. Instead, work with your hands. Keep your hands busy. Do it so that you have something to give to those in need. Now, Scripture has a lot to say about our duty as believers in helping those in need. Now, it says if we withhold from those truly in charity, then we are guilty of violating the Eighth Commandment. I'll touch on that just a little bit more. But it also says if someone, if someone's financial woes are simply because they're unwilling to work, that we're not to encourage that type of idleness with charity. The notion that society owes people benefits, whether they work or not, is really unbiblical. 
Scripture is quite clear that if someone is unwilling to work for a living, that they forfeit their right to even the most basic necessities of life. And I've got to be careful here because I'm not talking about people who are temporarily unemployed or facing legitimate uh, needs. I'm really referring, and I think Scripture refers to those who have made a career out of being unemployed, have made it a life choice to look to other people or to look to the government for support. That attitude is the sin of stealing. They're taking that which they could earn if they're working. And if you are gainfully employed, our work ethic here, if you are gainfully employed, you owe it to your employer to give him an honest day's work, giving it your very best. If you have, uh, I'll use my mother's term, a lackadaisical attitude, that would be what my mother would say. If you have a lackadaisical work ethic, if you're not applying yourself to be the very best that you can be in your work, you are robbing your employer. You are stealing from them. As a student, get this, if you are not applying yourself to your studies, if you are not learning as much as you can, if you are not excelling to be the very best that you can be in your academic work, then that's really the same thing as stealing. Because the money that your parents are paying to put you through school, you're stealing from that if you're not doing the best that you can do in school. So that's stealing and related to the work ethic. And this brings us to the third area, I think, in which the Eighth Commandment applies. And I touched on it. And that's stewardship. Our stewardship with our money. What is a steward? A steward is someone who cares for someone else's property. He is not free to use it how he pleases, but to manage it in accordance with his master's intentions. Remember what I said in the beginning, what the Christian's view is? What's mine is God's, so I'll share it. Stewardship. This is our situation. Whatever we possess, be it a large or small amount, a lot or a few, whatever we possess is God's property. And He has given us a sacred trust to look after it. And again, that's the way it has been from the beginning. Adam did not own property. Adam managed it. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden to work it and to watch over it. And like Adam, we are called to be good stewards of God's world. Good stewardship means taking care of what we've been given, not letting things fall into despair. Good stewardship means not being wasteful. Whenever we squander money that could be better spent on something else, we are guilty of a kind of theft. Whenever we squander time that could be spent on something else, we are guilty of a kind of theft. 
if you skimp on giving back to God a portion of what He has blessed you with, you're guilty of far worse a sin than stealing from your neighbor or from your employer or from the IRS. First Chronicles chapter 16, verse 29 says this, Ascribe to Yahweh the glory of His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. So all that we, all of what we have, all that is who we are, all of what we are, we owe to God. Worship, giving Him the glory due His name. Offerings, our gifts, our glad-hearted obedience. If we withhold any of that, we are robbing God. I had read Ephesians, Ephesians chapter four twenty-eight earlier, where it says the, the thief must no longer steal. Instead, he must do honest work with his hands. And get this last phrase. So that he has something to share with anyone in need. We're supposed to be working with our hands so that we have extra resources to share with people. That is good stewardship. And again, I'll just hit a point here. Anyone in need really refers to people with valid, legitimate needs. Uh, again, you know, legitimate, legitimate charity does not mean that we need to support people uh, who are unwilling to work. But we have to be valid or good stewardship means that we make wise decisions with the money that we do give. Good stewardship starts with meeting the needs of our family, really. Then it extends to the church and then to the global work of the gospel, supporting ministries that are preaching, proclaiming the gospel. And it reaches out to the poor in our communities and around the world. That is good stewardship. That is keeping of the Eighth Commandment. Good stewardship is what God demands of us. And good stewardship is really the polar opposite of stealing. Think about it. Stealing is opposed to everything Christ stands for. It's the opposite of what we're called to do as Christians. As Christians, we are called to live and give generously. We do not work simply to satisfy our own desires, but to provide for others. If we spend all of our excess money, whatever it is, uh, in leisure and pleasure, then we are stealing from those whom we ought to be helping, who have legitimate needs. And you see, this is the reason God has blessed us with abundance. Not so we can consume it ourselves, but so we can help those in need. Scripture says, give to him and don't have a stingy heart when you give. And because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you do. That was out of Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 10. 
So the consequences of such generosity, they last forever. We don't think about that too much when we give money to missions or when, when, we, when we support uh, the Peru trips, when we do all that. We don't, I don't think we think about how that is going to impact forever. A.W. Tozer once said this. He said, Any temporal possession can be turned into everlasting wealth. Whatever is given to Christ is immediately touched with immortality. Whatever is given to Christ is immediately touched with immortality. It's the Lord's work now. To put it another way, the only way The only money that we can count on seeing again is the money we invest in the kingdom of God. Investment in the kingdom of God lasts for eternity. Jesus said, Don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but collect for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. If we fail to make this investment, we're guilty of breaking the Eighth Commandment. You know, I said that the polar opposite of of stealing is really giving. And I've also mentioned before that when you have a negative commandment, there's an implied positive aspect. And that's what we see here. The duty of giving is really implied in this eighth commandment not to steal. So when we see this eighth commandment says, do not steal, it really really means... To give, and this is really uh, uh, it's implicit in this commandment, but it's made explicit again in Ephesians four twenty eight that we've just that we've just read, and then this whole principle, the moral principle of of this commandment, is summed up by the words of Christ, quoted in Acts chapter twenty verse thirty four. It is more blessed to give than to receive. So do you see how far reaching this commandment really is when you think about it? I would ask you, do we obey this commandment perfectly? I know I don't. When I look at it, it condemns me. But you know, the good news is that Christ did obey it perfectly and he obeyed this and all the commandments perfectly and his perfect righteousness is imputed to those who trust him as savior that's really what we celebrated with communion this is our one hope in face of the law and us looking at it and realizing that it does condemn us because we can't live up to it. Well, let's pray.
Father, we are thankful for Your Word. We are thankful You've given us the law to shine the light on on our sins. When we use the law to examine ourselves, we, we find ourselves guilty. And yet we are thankful, so thankful for Christ. Father, I pray that we would grow in our knowledge and understanding of what it means to live out the Eighth Commandment. Not just to, to not steal, but to give, to give generously, to work with our hands, to honor You, to bring You glory through our work. To bring you glory through our citizenship. To bring you glory through our stewardship of what you have given us. And yet we acknowledge and know we can't do it without you. We pray and ask for your strength in walking this commandment out day by day. In your holy name. Amen.